0: Um, let me see if I can muster up that sincerity once again. (laughs) But everybody has been very encouraging, and I I know my wife has spoken to me uh, numerous times about uh, how everybody's engaged her so lovingly, and I tell you, and my children, and I really appreciate that. um, You know how it is when you're a parent and a husband, you're more concerned about that than you are, you know, about the way people respond to you, and so... I'd just like to thank you for that. It's been really a really positive, wonderful, and encouraging uh, time. Um, I'd like to begin this uh, final session uh, with a reading from Daniel, chapter 7, verses uh, 13 and 14. Hear now the Word of God. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the ancients of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father God, we do pray that you would help us to appreciate this office of our Savior Jesus, that he is truly the King. May we come to know and feel the great assurance of his protection, of his victory. May we ever sing of it, and may it ever be proclaimed that his kingdom might continue to grow. We thank you, Father. In his name, amen. I'd like to finish uh, the whole uh, portion uh, of m- all of my talks here, obviously, but the part two here on the offices and work of Christ with the discussion of Christ the King, Jesus the King. I think this is probably the most neglected and poorly understood office. Though other offices, I think, are downplayed, there's generally some agreement that they do currently exist. But that's not really the case with this office. I don't know if you know if you realize this. Interesting thing happened to me on the way to the pulpit. I was preaching in our church, and um, we had been doing a Bible study, a K. Arthur Bible study. Two things that were really interesting about this. Uh, she had taught, you know, because she has this, uh, you know, precepts Bible study, and it's ostensibly a Bible study on just how to study the Bible, uh, you know, inductively and what have you. But it really, there's really definitely some theology there, as much as they say they're not, they don't have their own theology, it's definitely a dispensational theology. And one night in the tape, it's a tape, videotape series, series, she made the king, she made the comment, do you really think that Jesus is the king right now? And she looked, you know, and she kind of did a look around kind of thing. I don't think so, but he's king in my heart. And I was going through the process at that point of uh, becoming more reformed in my thinking, and um, I, um, I had the audacity to disagree with that. And, and I was preaching in a sermon, and I, I wasn't overly confrontive about it, but I did make the statement that it is a popular view that Jesus is no longer or is not the king. And I think that's wrong. I think Jesus is. And uh, that, interestingly enough, that little statement caused a couple people to leave our church. And somebody came up to me and told me that I was in rebellion. And I said, In rebellion against whom? <laughs> Apparently, K. Arthur. And I thought, <laughs> I, thought uh, I don't remember swearing allegiance to K. Arthur. But that that gives you, I mean, I'm not making this story up. That gives you an idea of who people think the modern day councils are. I mean, I willfully recognize that if I go off track and if I'm theologically derailed and the presbytery takes me to task, I can be in rebellion. Rebellion. You know, if I don't respond properly. And somebody could, you know, would rightly come up to me and say, you're in rebellion against the Presbytery. You're in rebellion against that which you've promised to submit to. And that would be a right statement. But in modern evangelicalism, for me to disagree with a popular personality who's well marketed, in the opinion of people in the congregation at that point, I was in rebellion because I didn't believe that Jesus was the current king. Now, the negotiations have been made, and both parties are satisfied. God the Father has received the payment, and Christ, who for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews 12:2 and 3. So, with an eye toward the joy, Christ endured the cross, and is now seated at the right hand of the Father. But I don't think we should think of Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father in repose. I don't think Jesus is at the right hand of the Father merely resting. Due to, quite frankly, the onslaught of dispensational error, we often fail to appreciate the office of Christ the King. Now, I read that passage in Daniel at an interesting uh, in one seminary I went to, it was a very dispensational seminary, this passage where the Son of Man comes up to the Ancient of Days and He's given a kingdom, right? You know the passage that I just read. Now, let me just tell you, the majority of our evangelical friends believe that that is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Okay? That happens when Jesus comes again to the earth. That's, that's, their, that's their context for that passage. So I was in a Daniel Revelation class, exposition class, and we got to this. And uh, you know, I've studied Greek, but I'm weak in Hebrew. So I raised my hand. I asked the question. I go, "Yes, question," because I don't really know the Hebrew that well. Is there any way in the Hebrew that we can understand that the Son of Man is not actually coming up to the ancients of days, but actually coming down to the earth? Because that's, the, that's where the way that's interpreted. The way that's interpreted is that that is when Jesus comes to the earth and begins his millennial reign, which is sometime in the future. And, and the, the, Greek, the Hebrew students in the class, as well as the teacher, all said, no, it, 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 it reads, he goes up to the ancient of days, who we all recognize to be God. And I said, well, then how, if he's going up to the ancient of days, do we interpret this as him coming down to earth to start his kingdom? And he said, um, well, that will become clearer when we get to Revelation. And I said, all right. So we got to the appropriate passages in Revelation. So Revelation 12, 13 and there talks about the passage. Basically, it's talking about how Jesus was born you know, out of the nation of Israel. And I raised my hand and I said, isn't this easiest to understand that Jesus... This is the time when Jesus was actually born and started his kingdom. And they said, Yes, it would be, except remember we learned in Daniel. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, you know, all right. Uh, It was an eye opener for me when I came to realize that this is the other side of the ascension. This is Jesus ascending to the Father, he's sitting at the throne. He is the reigning king. Now, as I said, dispensationalists often interpret this passage as being uh, concurrent with the beginning of Christ's future millennial reign. They believe it, quote, and this is a quote from Walbert and Zuck, it will be fulfilled at Christ's second advent, end quote. But the Son of Man is not coming to earth in this passage. He is coming on the clouds to the ancients of days, who is God, and given a kingdom. Now, the Old Testament foreshadow of this kingdom was the kingdom of, under David. The, if you will, the type of this kingdom was the kingdom of the, uh, under David. We read of this in Acts. Acts 2, 29-31. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he was both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to to him that of the fruit of his body according to the flesh he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. All right. That's a if you're talking to your dispensational friends, make sure you have this highlighted in your in your Bible, when would Christ assume this office as King? When would that happen? This passage says, "At His resurrection." Contrary to popular belief, even though Satan, in some sense, is the God of this age (2 Corinthians 4:3), that is, I think that many people are governed by him more than I would argue in terms of percentages than now. He is not God and He is not King. Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Not Revelation 19.6. Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation 1.5. It cannot be more forcefully stated, I think, than in the first chapter of Ephesians. He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Numerous are Jesus' activities as king. Uh, This is something I think, just stop for a second. Why is this important? I mean, friends, we're living in a, Christian culture that doesn't believe that Jesus is king of kings right now. I mean, I'm not not making this up. Matter of fact, um, I was talking to a pastor, a friend of mine, and they had a little logo on their denominational thing, and I go, what does this logo mean? It means prophet, priest, and soon coming king. So he's not the king right now. That's the position. Well, This kind of begs the question, if this is an error in their theology, if this is an error in their understanding of their Savior, what kind of ramifications does this error actually have in terms of their understanding of their faith? Because as king, Jesus makes and enforces laws, James 4.12. No wonder there's such antinomianism in the world today, in Christianity today. We have no king, and the king is the one who makes laws. He ordains authority, Ephesians 4.11 and Romans 13. He rewards, Revelation 2.10. He corrects, Revelation 3.19 and orders all things to His own glory, Romans 14.10 and 11 and more. But there are two things that Jesus does as our King that I would like to emphasize as we finish our lesson. First, He builds up His kingdom by subduing the hearts of of those whom He has ransomed. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes and you will keep My judgments and do them. Luke writes in Acts 15:16, After this I will return and I will build again the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and I will b- build again the ruins thereof and I will set it up. He is the king of a kingdom. And that kingdom is, grows by him subduing the hearts of its citizens. He created us, yet we were lost in rebellion. Then he purchased us with his own blood. He is our maker and he is our redeemer. He is the king of the hearts of men, and by virtue of that authority, he exercises proper dominion. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, as the rivers of waters, he turneth it whithersoever he wills. Proverbs 21.1 Now the means by which this grace comes to man, as we have discussed earlier, is the word and the sacrament. The means by which this, um, this kingdom grows is by, the, the, if you will, the preaching and the loaf and the cup by the church. I understand um, the, uh, even the world's antipathy and many uh, Christians' antipathy toward kind of the uh, moral majority methodology of growing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God does not advance primarily through legislation and the way normal kingdoms advance. The kingdom of God, and, I, and believe in my eschatology, I think that uh, those things will be affected. I think they should be affected. But primarily, the kingdom of God advances through the preaching of the word and the loaf and the cup and proper exercise of church discipline. That is the means by which the kingdom advances. It's not by might and not by force and not by chariots. And how obvious does the Bible teach us? That's the case. The catechism teaches that as king, he takes vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. So, in another, in a probably more exegetically accurate sense, we're informed in Revelation 19.15, "...and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and with it he should smite the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of God Almighty." You see, Christ is a loving and benevolent king, but one must understand that rebellion against him is not like rebellion against any human potentate or any human king. Rebellion against the regal office of Christ, rebellion against Jesus, the king, is rebellion against the very essence of what is good and right and true. And this is where I think understanding the office of Christ is important because people tend to think that we have pledged allegiance to some first century you know, Nazarene, and we're just kind of got an undue allegiance to this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, not recognizing that Jesus is not, was not just telling the truth, he was truth. Everything that we view as virtuous and right and good and true is summed up in him. It flows from the character and nature of God himself. So rebellion against this king isn't merely rebellion against some personality. It's a rebellion against everything that is right and good and true. It's a rebellion against that which is honorable. And goodness, truth, and righteousness will have its way in quashing evil and infidelity, both in history and... And finally, in eternity. Let us be reminded that the most quoted verse in the New Testament, out of the Old Testament, more than any other passage, comes from Psalm 110. For he must reign till he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15.25 and many other places. So friends, praise be to Christ who has Prophet brings God's word to men. As priest, satisfied the divine justice of the Father, and as king, lovingly and irresistibly rescues us from our own rebellion, and grows his kingdom throughout the world, a kingdom that will not be destroyed. Now, I'd like to kind of revisit something I had said earlier, and that is, um, I'm leaving that subject, and I'm finishing up here. Uh, You know, I I, I just would encourage you... uh, as I talk to people, um, to re-, if you will, rediscover the beauty of these articles of faith uh, that maybe, I don't know, maybe you don't take them for granted, uh, but I know for me, when these things were made known to me, it just really transformed my Christian life. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I got saved, but it was definitely, you know, if I were a charismatic, I would have called it a second blessing, you know. And, uh, and so, you know, these are things that are wonderful to hear and learn and, uh, and bring uh, to the table of your conversation with with your friends. But I would like to revisit something that I said, and that is, what, what can we learn um, from our evangelical friends? Because they, there are definitely good things happening uh, there. There's definitely... Uh, I'll tell you something. Somebody... Um, was talking to me about, you know, the purpose-driven life. And they said, you know, I kind of got a lot out of that, And I'm like, you know what? I read it. I got some things out of it. I'm reading, you know, I just got a copy of Utopia. I plan on getting some things out of that. I read, I read, still read Walbert and Zuck. I read, I read people I agree with, I disagree with. I have friends who aren't believers who have such good pa- patterns of behavior that I imitate. I, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, some things are dangerous to put in the hands of young believers like I said earlier, you know, don't go to Fuller until you're at least 50. But I think that we can learn, and I think, we can, you know, we can learn from people who we disagree with. I think we can learn. I mean, like I said, I have unbelieving friends who have demonstrated to me ways to love uh, my wife that I didn't, you know, that I, didn't, I hadn't picked up on. So I think, you know, we can learn from everybody and everything, you know, learn in terms of the way people uh, communicate. And I had a friend in high school, to this day, he's about as liberal as you could get, and he's an atheist, and he's all out there, but he just had the ability to uh, engage, and he was a real handsome guy, and he was on a track scholarship. I mean, he was a real winner, you know. But he had, he had this personality where, you know, we'd be on the bus, and he'd find the guy in the back seat who was kind of like, you know, feeling uncomfortable, and he just had the ability to make the guy feel so good, and, you know, I just, I'd just look at this guy, and I'd go, you know what, it's just a great personality trait that he has, that he engages, and he's He's uplifting and he's encouraging, you know. And yet he's just about as lost as you could possibly be. He, he works for um, Westwood One Radio and we still talk. And, uh, you know, he's just about as far out there as you can get. And, I'm, you know, I, I share the gospel with him and he just makes jokes and moves on. But still, there's qualities that we can imitate. And certainly there are qualities we can imitate from the wider evangelical circles. And I mentioned some of them earlier. I'd like to mention them again. Especially, by the way, in light of this office of Christ as king, I think it's, um, and and the ultimate and sure victory of his kingdom, I think um, these things are particularly significant. First of all, I had mentioned before enthusiasm. It's interesting if you look at the etymology of that word, the middle of that word, theus, is really derived from God, theos. That we should be, there should be a certain amount of excitement that we have. Often the enthusiasm is short-lived in modern evangelical circles, but it's enthusiasm nonetheless. I think we're all familiar with the passage in Revelation 2, 2 through 5, where Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. Uh, it seems, you know, that the, the message here is, you know, don't get lethargic about it. You need, there needs to be a sense of excitement about uh, bringing that message out and looking for those opportunities to, to be salt and light. Uh, for, you know, somebody came up to me and said, well, what about unbelievers? You know, and I realized this isn't, uh, you know, I wasn't asked to give uh, a talk to unbelievers. That, by the way, was my... Um, I got trumped by the committee because I was going to do a whole thing on the pub, and they're like, ah, no, not the pub. They wanted me to do the remedial Christianity series, which I had to, like I said, change. Uh, but that's a that's a that's a whole different thing. And I certainly, like I said to my the man I was talking to, it's not like we're doing this and ignoring the unbeliever, you know. I mean, your eyes are always open, right? It's funny. We live in a very uh, churches are very program oriented. And, you know, we don't have a lot of programs in our church. You know, people start things on their own and we encourage them. But they're like, you know, we need opportunities to minister. And I'm thinking, you know what? Are you, are you telling me that you had no opportunity to minister this week to anybody? Do you live in a closet? I don't say that because I want to be nice. But that's the thinking, right? Are you saying there's no, no, there's no conversation, no nothing? You have to be part of a program in order to minister? In order to, you know, to, to develop, as I said earlier, a ministerial relationship? And again, as I mentioned earlier, the concern for the loss. There seems to be great emphasis among certain evangelicals in terms of their concern for the loss. They own the modern evangelical movements, and I don't think it should be this way. Uh, I had Dr. Sproul, you know, R.C. Sproul is a, a teacher one time. He was a really funny guy, and he made a statement one time, and he was talking, and he gave kind of his, little, his life, his testimony or whatever. And he said that um, when he was, I think he was in college when he became a, a believer, and his wife, his fiance at the time, wasn't. And he said, I prayed like an Arminian. <laughs> That's funny. I, I can totally identify with that. Because Arminians think they're really going to change God's mind. You know, I mean, they think God's up their way. You know, and yet at the same time, we have to recognize that w- however we understand the sovereignty of God, we should never understand it in such a way that would ever relieve us of any responsibilities of beseeching God with everything we've got. It shouldn't be that way. And we have to have a concern for the law. So we, we, we should not have any type of, uh, you know, and this kind of came up with a hyper-Calvinism uh, statement. We should, have, we should not have this, th- this underlying thing where we're going, you know, God will take care of it. You know, I'm not going to worry about it. That's, that's, that's rebellion. That's sin. That's lethargy. We, we've got to witness, if you will, like Arminians, We've got to pray like Arminians. And you, I, you understand what I'm saying. I'm, you understand, I, hopefully you understand, because I'm not going to explain it any further. <laughs> we have to have a willingness to engage. We must be willing. Um, my uh, particular transformation into historic Protestant Reformed biblical Christianity came as a result of those within that c- community who were willing to make the effort. They were willing to somehow communicate with me. And, you know, we have to develop social skills, you know. We have to develop the ability to have a talk with somebody and not go over the top. And, you know, I've, I had a whole class with my own congregation about this in terms of how to engage and, you know, how to ask questions and how to listen. And, you know, you want to be interesting, be interested, you know, listen talk and listen. People love to talk about themselves. I don't know about you, but when I walk away from a conversation realizing that all I did was talk about myself, I walk away pretty empty. But when I walk away from a conversation, going, you know what? I just found out a ton of stuff about that person. I have to make a conscious effort to do that. You have to make the conscious effort, and there's there's just you know a line of things where you just kind of get in and listen to the person and try to figure out who is this person who I've just met? You know what's making them tick? What are they thinking? Where's their head at? You know. And be interested in what they're saying and be willing to engage, you know. And, and, and don't be so utilitarian, I think. You know, I'm not saying you're this way, but we don't want to be overly utilitarian in the way we approach things as if right away all I'm doing this is to get some information so that I can present to you my product. You know, be, real, be a real person who really cares and really loves and really talks and is really interested. And, and that when that person's sad, you'll find that you're really sad. And when they're joyful, you're really joyful. And, and you know, become that kind of a person. The people who influenced me, you know, uh, that, you know, that helped were people who were willing to get out there and do that. Some of them were very personal people knocking on my doors or calling me on the phone or willing to talk to me. Uh, you tend to pe- I mean, I, I guess some people don't like to be um, challenged in their thinking, you know, but if it's done properly, I think most people are really willing to kind of hear what somebody else has to say. But I, and also in the writings, and I, I really like particularly challenge uh, you know this group in terms of, of that, and that is getting the information out. I mean, and I and I, you know uh, there are people in, who've published things. You know, I mentioned earlier Greg Bonson or Ken Gentry, who I had when I was doing radio I had on my show Michael Horton, for example, and the whole White Horse Inn guys. You know, they've they've just decided we're going to write things, we're going to on the radio, we're going to get out, we're going to get that whole thing out there. They they've really affected a lot of people. R.C. Sproul, obviously, and his Ligonier Ministries is just an, because, an amazing effect upon a lot of people. There are people who I, who I know. I, had a, I ran into, um, uh, we were having, I think it was a soccer party for our kids or something like that, and I ran into a couple, and they went to another church, and it, they were a full-on dispensational, you know, family and all that, and we're talking. And we started getting into the little bit of an eschatology talk, and they really kind of weren't into it. I mean, their pastor had written a book on um, end times and stuff, and, but they had never really heard it. But you know what? They loved R.C. Sproul. And uh, so, you know, R.C. Sproul put together a book called The Last Days According to Jesus, which is really the last days according to Ken Gentry's view of the last day according to Jesus, as written by R.C. Sproul is what that is. But, you know, here you have. Uh, for me, that made my life easier because I could just kind of give, you know, you like R.C. Sproul. You think he's a credible source because oftentimes, especially eschatologically speaking, people think that you're just out there. You, they, I remember somebody looking at me just with such incredulity going, are you telling me that you think right the millennium's now? And I'm like, yeah, I guess I think that's between the first and second advents of Christ. That's the millennium. And they're like, woo, woo, you know. <laughs> Because they have, such a, they have been given such a fantasy land view of what the millennium actually is going to look like. So, you know, uh, not to get into this, Charlie and I were talking about it the other day, and I have little things that I use when I talk to my dispensational friends about the millennium, and I ask them, um, so you, are you comfortable with the idea of Jesus sitting in a temple and having animals sacrificed in front of him? And, the, and 90% of them go, no. Well, that's, that's what your system necessitates. That's, if you're going to have that Ezekiel rebuilding of the temple as kind of future temple, that's what happens there. Jesus is sitting in a man-made temple and they're sacrificing animals to him as a memorial, quote. Just read your Charles Ryrie uh, reference Bible. It's right in there. They're not really comfortable with that. Um, but I would like to challenge, you know, the people here because we have really, I mean, I don't know if you realize what it, I mean, even last night in the skit night and the the... The talent and the intellect, Uh, it's really, God has really blessed uh, this group. There's wisdom, there's talent, there's uh, stability, there are solid people who can put things together, and I would really, if I I guess I was going to challenge you, I would challenge you to get that information out there. Friends, there are so many forms of communication today. There are podcasts and blogs, and these are things, you know, that we're doing, you know, Um, We're working on a local television uh, station to have a, you know, a little television show. Um, There there are books that can be written, uh, debates that can be had, uh, web pages. Uh, We're writing, you know, like I said, I write an article for the local newspaper, which I'm amazed every time they print it. I mean, it's not a small newspaper. I think it's got a circulation of 150,000. It's a big newspaper. And I write just clearly evangelical articles about believing in Jesus. I mean, it's like a almost, and I, every time I'm waiting for the guy to email me back and go, you know what, we've changed our policy. I'm waiting for that same phone call I got with the baccalaureate, right? Well, we don't do that anymore, but thank you. Bye-bye. And, uh, you know, I remember I, I have a buddy who used to be on the old Leave it to Beaver show, Tony Dow. He and I go way back. We're really good friends. And we, uh, we uh, we, uh, we, uh you know, I've been, I've witnessed him over the years, and actually, it was this interesting story. His uh, he wanted me to do his son's wedding, because I've, I've known his son since he was a kid, and um, his son was engaged to a, a lady who was a professing Christian, and uh, they live in Fresno. And they said, "No," I said, "No." You know what? I can't do the wedding. I'll do weddings of two believers, and I'll do two weddings of unbelievers, but I won't do a believer and an unbeliever. So they're like, "Well, how come you don't want to do the wedding?" And I'm going, "Well, you know what?" It's just it violates my conscience to do something that's I think unbiblical. So his son came down and uh, his wife, uh, they're, and they're wonderful people. You know, she went to a church I think called the People's Church, and it was just this big, kind of crazy church. You know, and he's we had a they came all the way down from Fresno. And We sat in my office and we had a three hour discussion. It was really an apologetic, and uh, and uh, they left. You know, and I'm I'm saying things. He's like, well. You know, how do we know there's a God? And I'm like, well, you know, I think you know there's a God. He goes, well, why is there evil? And I go, well, how do you define evil? And we uh, we got into this whole discussion. I go, and I remember it really bothered him. And I go, can you tell me? Do you think what Hitler did was wrong? He goes, yeah. I go, how would you how would you win an argument with Adolf Hitler? Well, it's just wrong. Yeah, but he thought it was right. Well, how would you go about? What ultimate authority would you appeal to? And we, we went, you know, I'm, if you know anything about apologetics, you know where this goes, right? And it really bothered him that all he could say was, in his opinion, Hitler was wrong. But as far as Hitler might, his opinion, it might be right. And you guys would just have to shake hands, and it would be an impasse. It would be a stalemate. That really bothered him that he was living in a world that didn't have an ultimate sense of authority. It just bugged him. So they went back up to Fresno, and about three months later, because I have this little form I make of them fill out, you know, about their statement of faith, you know. And they hadn't sent it, and they called me, and he came back down again. Three more hours. At the end of the three more hours, he said, you know what? If I believe, what am I supposed to do? And I, I, let me tell you, I was a little shocked. Because I wanted to pray the sinner's prayer. <laughs> and I gave them some instruction. I go, you know what you need to do is you've got to go back home, find a church, you know, find a sound church. He didn't like our church because... He felt like uh, he was raised in a Catholic environment and he felt like it wasn't even church because they didn't have communion. They didn't have anything. It was just a bunch of guitars. And, and I go, you need to find a church where, uh, not I against guitars, I'm saying, I've got to correct that. They just had some music and then they had a message and that was it. It wasn't, uh, there was nothing liturgical about it at all. There was no sacrament. There was no pardon of sin. There was no, no things that sometimes you see with the Roman Catholics, although we wouldn't agree with them. And um, in terms of what those things mean and what have you. And uh, but nonetheless, uh, he came to faith. And um, this has been years. And I just saw him a few months ago. And he's the fireman up there. And he's walking with the Lord. And he's part of the Firemen's Christian Association. and well, I mean, it's really been a neat thing. However, Dad and I are still going at it. But this has really affected Dad because Dad uh, loves his son. I mean, you know, they have a really close relationship. So we, we get together a lot, and there's a, we have a mutual friend who's a, a, a movie director. He directs uh, family films. He did Jingle All the Way and Are We There Yet and uh, Snow Dogs and Beethoven and Flintstones. He's a neat guy. He's a Jewish man, and I've shared the gospel with him as well. And we've, but we were up there at his house and playing volleyball, and afterwards we were sitting in the hot tub. This is, this is going somewhere. I'm just I'm <laughs> I was at Starbucks, and I totally, I can't believe I did this. You know, I could have made this a lot shorter. I really could. But I went so short last time, right? And I, I, I'm feeling a little better now. And we're sitting in the hot tub, and uh, I go, you guys, you know, I had, just, I had just watched, I think, an episode of Law & Order or something. It was just so amazingly beautiful bad. The logic was bad. The theology was bad. And I was so frustrated. I go, do you guys have any idea how badly your industry misrepresents what Christians really believe? And then I'm thinking, but of course, there might be accurately representing, you know, the wider evangelical circles, but it was just frustrating me. And they go, well, why don't you do something about it if you don't like it? And I go, well, what can I do? And so uh, they worked it out so that I am now a member of the Writers Guild Advisory Board. So if you go online and you Google me, you're going to find me as an advisor. And about once every month or two, I get a phone call from some screenwriter. Uh, I just got one the other day, and he's like, uh, okay, is this Pastor Paul? Vigiana, yeah. So can you be born again again? I need to know that for my school. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Not only is it satisfying to go, you know what, at least this is going to be more accurate, you know. But also, it's very evangelistic talking to this guy because as I'm explaining what it means to be born again and how you really can't be born again again because God does this, and I'm explaining, I'm explaining the gospel to this guy. And some other guy wrote, emailed me, and I emailed him back, and he said, Thank you, Father. Bless you, son. Bless you. Sorry I have no money for you, Father. <laughs> I would just really encourage you. I mean, there's so many different forms of communication. And, there's some, and a lot of them aren't very expensive. And if you're willing to engage and get it out there and write and, and, and vocalize and just get the information out, it's such a powerful medium. It's so powerful that God can use these things to change the world. Friends, the Reformation changed the world. Because the message was God's message. And it spread. I mean, it spread with the blood of men and women who would not be stifled. The zeal of modern evangelicalism combined with the true message of the Reformation, I think, will be no less effective today. Let us pray. Father God, we do pray that we would seek those opportunities to bring your message the message of your Son, our prophet, priest, and king, our Savior, the message of the kingdom of God, Father, that it may grow, that it may grow throughout the world. We know, Father, that Jesus sits at your right hand. We know, Father, that as a king, he will, in fact, not be stopped. We pray, Father, that we would be good citizens of that kingdom, that we would open our mouths, open our hearts, Father, that we might be used by you to advance that kingdom for your own glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.